Welcome to Hot D, the officially unofficial podcast for House of the Dragon on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're back to do our feedback episode for season one, episode one, The Heirs of the Dragon. Aaron, I have to imagine that there was just a flood of feedback. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly about our Game of Thrones coverage, there was a lot of it. It's not quite the torrent that late stage Game of Thrones was, oh, but it's goodness. pretty healthy. Like, okay. uh <laughs> You know, we, I, I, we, we, that was one big question we had. Like, how much of the Game of Thrones faithful are going to come back to the show with all the competition and increased, uh, you know, profile podcasts has got how many are going to find us back to our show? And I am incredibly pleased. Uh, HBO released some statistics. Something like 10 million people tuned in to see the premiere that night, mm-hmm. which is a new HBO record. Uh, and we crested at number four. Of the podcast and TV and film number, I think we got as high as 33, maybe 31 on iTunes rankings overall. That's okay. phenomenal. So yeah. I really appreciate Got so much feedback saying so glad to have you guys back talking about Game of Thrones. So glad to have you all back. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. We've got nowhere to go but up from here. Uh, or, or crashing down. I don't know. Maybe it's like I said, I, I've only seen the first episode. We'll, we'll see. But, uh, yeah. I've got some friends that have seen more and said they're pretty, they're pretty excited by it. So I am too. Uh, we have a ton of feedback. Uh, fortunately, there was a lot of subjects to kind of, well, I don't know, fortunately, unfortunately, there's a lot of subjects that sucked up a lot of the oxygen in the room. So there's a lot of duplicates. And of course I always try to go with the either more, the, the most, the, the first or most complete and accurate articulation of an idea um when i'm when i'm awarding my you know I, i've got the i'm a little princess and i've got a little wreath and as i'm and i'm rewarding my favors on the emailers I, I try to keep those in in mind but uh mm-hmm. you know i i appreciate everybody's sent in message and i try to write back to everyone i didn't get to read but h-o-t-d hot d at baldmove.com is how you send in the feedback to the show uh, there's a lot of ways, places you can send it in, uh, but the only place it's going to get a chance to get read is is that e- email address, hotd at baldmove.com. And after all, who's got the hottest E, if not bald to broken? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's start off with Zach. He says, word is that George R. R. Martin is way with five A's more involved in the show than he was with Game of Thrones. Back when Game of Thrones was in its heyday, George would famously say in interviews that he didn't like to be that involved in the show because the show is a show. My books are my books. They're different stories, and I'm focused on making my books. Do you guys think that in the years since Game of Thrones controversial ending that some of the backlash affected his book sales and readers community, leading him to the conclusion that their public sh- opinion of the show adaptations and the books they're based on are more closely tied than he had anticipated? Could that be why he's gotten more involved with Hot D, apparently wanting them to stick more closely to the source material? Did he learn his lesson about letting creators go running with his vision? I can see that final part being true. Um, being displeased with how the fans took the ending of Game of Thrones. But I would say if the show did anything for his book sales, it boosted it mightily. Sure. Uh, there's no way he didn't sell just a shitload more books than, than he ever would if he hadn't signed a contract. Right, right. No matter how good or bad the show was, uh, it's just more exposure. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's fine with how the books went. But, yeah, he might as the creator of these stories be disappointed with the way that those stories were told and want to take the reins back. 
Yeah, I, I wonder if we'll ever get the whole story because it seems like that the double D's boobs that they are and George Martin, a bit of a boob himself, were bosom buddies uh, for the first couple of seasons of Game of Thrones, slapping each other on the back, congratulating each other on success. Martin wrote a couple episodes. But somewhere in the four, five, six, it seems like, and this is all just kind of, you know, kind of, I guess, informed speculation and guesswork. It seems like there was a mutual kind of falling out. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with George not finishing the books because Mm -hmm. in those early days, he was very confident that he'd have wins out and dance and it would just be this triumphant culmination of everything happening at the same time. I think the double D's had to start you know, playing jazz. And I don't think they particularly like doing that. I think they kind of got bored with, uh, you know, they kind of sort of forgot to write the last few seasons in a compelling kind of <laughs> Martin-esque way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Martin was very happy with how those things ended. We just something that came out this week is that he had a pretty impassioned plea to HBO to be like, please, can we give this 10 seasons? You know, this needs more time. Uh, it needs it, it needs a little bit more time to breathe. I don't know if he's trying to buy, you know, buy time to finish the books or what. But uh, it seems. Why doesn't HBO go for that? Because. Yeah, hmm. I think HBO would have. I think the double D's were adamant that we okay. are wheels the fuck up sense. out of this thing. And then we're let done them with get it. Wheels the fuck up and get, get some other people in there to finish it off. I I don't know. I've heard and I didn't I didn't because this is like Hollywood shit. And I, that's the stuff that like I don't really care, although this is pretty juicy. I heard some unsubstantiated rumors that like Kit Harrington is okay. trying to amass a, a source of funding to, you know, essentially remake the final season or two. <laughs> OK, it sounds like uh, fantasy I, 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 wish fulfillment for the, a particular set of fans. But all right, there there is. Well, but there's also talks of this Jon Snow sequel. Uh-huh. And I have to think that that would be more successful if they were able to do something like that. And I, you know, it's it's not super unprecedented. It doesn't happen very often. But like uh, I was a big fan of uh, uh, Full Metal Alchemist. And that first anime adaptation was completed before the manga was finished. And they kind of had to play jazz at the end, too. And I, I didn't think it was terrible. But then once the manga came out, they 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 did um, uh, Brotherhood, uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, that essentially redid uh, the, the whole series and made it a lot, uh, you know, dovetail with or not dovetail. It, it made it agree with the ending of the manga, which I enjoyed a lot more. So you can do it. Uh, and I think that with this kind of property is exactly the kind of thing you would do. Like who says no to like, okay, everything up to season six is canon. We're going to do seven and eight differently after wins and, and dream come out. And then we'll have the Jon Snow thing. And we've already got the strong Targaryen base. I, I could, I could see an argument for that. I mean, fucking George Lucas did the specialized editions that changed some important <laughs> canon. Like you can do it, right? Oh, sure. That went super well for him. Yeah, everybody loves but, but the, the changes only, but, he made. But did people get their bitch on that there was going to be special editions or did they get their bitch on because no, Han shot no. first, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, they got their bitch on because he changed things. Like, it yes. wasn't just an updated graphics version of Star Wars. It was substantial but if you change things, if you change things that I think fans enjoy sure. that. So, like, I, I, yeah, I don't it's know. It's one thing to change beloved material. It's another thing to change stuff that everybody hated. So, so yeah, here you got I, George. I here you got George with a hand-picked successor, Ryan Condal, uh, someone that, uh, 
you know, he has gotten along with and seems to probably see George as over him in terms of like, whereas I think the double D's increasingly saw themselves as over George, you know, which fair enough. Like I, you know, if I had taken the job of adapting someone else's work to screen and then they just stopped writing halfway through, I'd be kind of salty about it too. Totally. Uh, And I think that he's got, this story is done and this is the this is this is where the gardener in him is is ready to shine because all the structures there and he can just, you know, help them put in tidbits and breathe life into things and answer like lore questions. And this is kind of like him and being the happiest pig in slop. So I, I don't know. I, and I do wonder if we'll ever get the whole fucking story of what went on behind the scenes, you know, in late stage Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, but- almost certainly not. Certainly, I don't know. Forever's a long time. The Double Ds are relatively young. Martin could do some deathbed revelations. There could be, you know, like we found. Think about how much we found out about the Darabont stuff in uh, uh, in the, the Walking Dead because of like lawsuits and filings and things like that. So it's like you, you never know. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, Geoff wants to know, is there any chance that a wound on Viserys back not healing is a sign of grayscale? Uh, mm. do you remember grayscale? Sure. Yeah. It's the something thing that, that turns you into a stone man, apparently. Yeah. Something that uh, Jorah fucked around and found out when he went to uh, tour in old Valeria mm-hmm. on his penance, penance mission for Danny. Um, the, uh, so this is all I mean obviously I've read the books I can confirm I could confirm or deny the a, a, a disease rampaging through King's Landing uh, I'm not going to do that it's very mildly interesting what do you think uh, it doesn't look exactly the same but it does look similar I remember it being very gooey but Sam was like mm-hmm. pulling pieces off of Jorah and, and mm-hmm. the goo was underneath I didn't see any pieces coming off here but maybe I just maybe we started the scene too late they had already started peeling him. Yeah, it would uh, certainly add a lot of complications to on oh, yeah. top of uh, questions of succession and gendered politics. You throw a unchecked uh, pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. rampaging through the heart of the kingdom. And I there'd be interesting ties, tie ins with like, you know, modern history, you know. Sure. Uh, so I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. Uh, Adam wonders, are the tournament melees to the death? It just seems so stupid to murder all your knights and lords of the ruling class for a tournament. I kind of assumed these uh, fights were just for exhibition and not for blood, but maybe I missed that detail. Like when Bobby B wanted to join the melee in book one, could he have killed motherfuckers? And I thought that attorney sword was wooden, so you didn't murder your opponent, i.e. Uh, when Bryn was thrown into the bear pit, Jamie Lannister practiced, uh, uh, or yeah, she got a tourney sword down there. Jamie Lannister practicing with the tourney sword in his left hand. But an attorney, they're bashing skulls into a bloody mess. Um, I, I think that Bobby could have killed people because he's the king. And of the course. king can, by definition, do whatever he wants. But, like, you're correct. Um, medieval jousting and these other tournaments were not designed to kill the nobility and the elite shock troops of their armies. It was designed to be entertaining and to you know, demonstrate your martial skill and prowess. But uh, I think textually you're supposed to understand this wanton killing to be a, the realm, all these Lords chafing under seven years of peace and unable to distinguish themselves in battle. So like 
there's a lot of rivalries and probably bad blood and you know uh that has arisen over time and two you have a weak king that's distracted uh remember in the first game of thrones how you had the tourney of the hand and uh, gregor uh jousted uh sir loris and lost to him and then got off, beheaded his own horse and was going to kill Loris. And the hound stepped in to stop him. And Bobby stood, you know, Bobby B stood up and said, stop this madness in the name of the king. And Sandor did that sweet little kneel maneuver to made, uh, you know, Ryan, Gregor yeah. miss. Sword, yeah. If so, imagine, I imagine Viserys probably would have put an end to some of the worst but you've got the prince kind of starting things out with some dirty play and it kind of snowballed. And it, I mean, you could you could see from the uh, uh, the Valerians, you know, Corliss and, and his wife, Rhaenys, that uh, this was something that they thought was distasteful and unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's certainly not. And there's many, many, many tournaments listed throughout uh, the Song of Ice and Fire history throughout Westeros, and mostly people didn't die. Or if they died, it was by accident. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like just ways sometimes people die in boxing or football. Anytime you got that kind of contact, a splinter could go through an uh, 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 eye slit in a helmet and, and go into someone's brain, and or you just get an infection. And But, but it wasn't designed to do that. Uh... Norm says, I watched the first episode of House of the Dragons, enjoyed it, but I'm not sure if I'll continue. We have a few uh, unsure to negative reviews here to, to get to get with my issues. Is I felt like I was dropped into a later season of Game of Thrones, but without any of the connections to the characters established. Yes, I can feel for whomever was giving birth and the king sacrificing her and the daughter's complex emotions, plus the complicated relationship between the king and his brother. Oh, and the build up the hand of the king seemed to have the best intentions of the kingdom before seeing him pimp out his daughter. I can see that changing my opinion of him. But uh, did the hand of the king's son get killed by the brother of the king during the games? I don't know. There's just so much going on. I'm not being totally lazy, but not putting names. Of, but other than the king, the serious, I couldn't remember anybody's. Could they have started off a little smaller? Going fully into this world again is a lot. Your podcasts are definitely going to help, but I shouldn't have to read up and prep to know all the characters for the show. Can't they have a John or an Ed or a Bob or a Sally names that can be remembered more easily? I guess it'll get easier once we have more exposure, right? 100% with you. I hate the names in both of these shows. I think the the, the crossover between names here is super confusing and they're not conventional names, so they're already hard to remember. Uh, yes, I'm with you on that. I think, look, this is the beginning of the story. You're going to be thrown in to the deep end. Um, it's just, uh, it's just the way things go. I know there are a lot of characters in these types of shows, but just consider this immersion therapy. You, you will get dunked into this pool and you'll be going progressively further out into the water. But as you go, the water will get warmer. You know, you'll just kind of pick this stuff up you'll know faces you don't necessarily need to know names uh it will help for certain conversations i'm sure but you'll get it you know this is it's not like "Ah, i didn't pick up everything on the first episode so i guess i'll never get it no it just it'll take time and you know you i i think it's easy to forget what it felt like to watch the pilot episode of game of thrones sure. and that was famously like who the fuck are these people i mean when they, when they say oh ned stark and then the next scene they say eddard i'm like the fuck are these two different does he have a brother that i didn't know about right. what's happening here right 
And I think that this is a part of the re- cultural realism is that Martin is showing uh, a believable mesh of four or five different cultures coming together in one continent. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, like it's uh, if, if you heard uh, someone call, um, you know, uh, if, if you heard someone uh, named John and then someone else later, you heard to, you heard him call him Jack. Who wouldn't throw you? Right. Because we understand, you know, like Jim, can, James could can be Jim, could be Jimmy. Uh, sure. There's there's lots of different variations that we have in our culture that's that's and every culture has that kind of thing. So um, we don't you know, as, as Americans, especially, you know, we are kind of like a little bit of a monoculture. Um, I, I know there's exceptions of people that have immigrated recently, but mostly you've got your Jim's and your Tim's and your Sarah's and your Sally's. Um, but, you know, as Westeros is not like that. It's recently conquered by an entirely different culture, uh, you know. We're going to talk later on in the Maester's Corner that uh, you've got the Andals, you got the First Men, you got the Roinar. Uh, it's a real melting pot. So that means you're going to have bizarre to our ears names, um, and 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 uh, and they're just like a Targaryen would have no problems distinguishing a Rhaenyra from a Rhaenys. Uh, just like we have no problems distort, you know, distinguishing a Jim from a Jimmy, you know, uh, that's just how they are. And, and it seemed like it was a conscious choice because there was an interview where Ryan Condal and uh, Miguel Sapochnik were talking about, like, do we really go in with a Rainice and a Rhaenyra? And, uh, you know, or, are we going to change this? Like, <laughs> uh, you can't. You can't. George wouldn't have like, let him. Like that, that Bashki uh, Lord of the Rings adaptation where they called Saruman Aroman. Because they didn't want to confuse it with Sauron. Sauron like sure. that makes a lot of sense, but also it's heresy. It's heresy. You would have the hardcore fans bitching and moaning constantly. So like I, I think you just bite the bullet and just don't worry about it. You will learn this by osmosis, mm-hmm. just like you did presumably in season one of Game of Thrones, and it'll it'll start making sense. But right now it's fine to talk about, you know, the hunky blonde guy versus the dorky blonde guy versus the black blonde guy versus, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's fine to just, just, just refer to people's appearance and whatever or nicknames uh, you got yeah. for them. So I think it'll be fine. Um, and also like, no, I don't really think they could like, just like you could make an argument that maybe they should have started this first episode of game of Thrones entirely on the Starks. Just introduce one family at a time. It's not really how the story goes. There's a lot of things happening all at once. That's one of the things that makes it such an exciting time, you know, Mm -hmm. such a time of upheaval. So I think you'll be fine. Norm stick with it. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual summer badass fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, we're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. 
Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Uh, Nicole K says, uh, points out another thing, a weakness of the show. She identified one thing I felt was missing and I hope they will show that will show up in episodes to come is some humor. This fart's not going to cut it. Pun intended. I think it's fair to say that one of the things Game of Thrones fans love most was Tyrion's epic one liners and witty sparring with other characters who will be the Tyrion of House of the Dragon. Even a brawn type character would be welcome. I realize this is a very heavy episode and had a lot to get done, so I understand the lack of humor out of the gate, but I hope some new characters emerge in future episodes to add some levity. You are correct. I don't even see on the horizon a character who could be that. I feel like Rhaenyra... See? Here's the names. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the young heir to the throne now. Um, mm-hmm. She could have some element of that to her. Uh, she's very wry in her humor and sort of, uh, you know, flippant with her tone. And I like that about her. Yep. It, it's Tyrion-esque in some ways. But, yeah, we don't have the character who is very obviously going to be that. Yeah, we don't have a real wise ass. We're missing a Bronn. Right. We're missing a Tyrion. Um, and that is one of the, I think, weaknesses in the core material. Hmm. And I don't know how they intend to show it up. If I read between the lines of some of the reviews I've seen, they've seen more than one, like, uh, you know, I'm talking like Alan Seppenwalls. It does seem that this is a bit more of a dour, stodgy kind of thing. It's not say it's devoid of humor, but it might just not have those type of characters uh, as front and center. Um, That's unfortunate. Yeah, but we'll see. a large we'll part see. of my enjoyment of early Game of Thrones. I will say that many, the, the, on multiple rewatches of this episode, I found there is a lot of sly humor and, you know, the one liners, the reactions of the small council, uh, some of the under the breath stuff that's being said. Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's certainly not Tyrion confessing to milking the one eyed <laughs> giant into his sister's clan stew or whatever the fuck it is at the Erie. But mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, shit, they could just bring mushroom out. Just get, just get, just get much. Just get the dwarf out here telling drunken japes, uh, narrating the whole thing. All uh, right. Yeah. Nina has several questions and comments. First up, Viserys Queen is listed as Ama Aaron on IMDb. Why does she have a Targaryen silver hair if she's Aaron? And is she a Targaryen and an Aaron? 
Okay, so the whole deal behind this is her mother was a Targaryen princess that was married to the Lord of the Vale, uh, one Roderick Aaron. Uh, So even though she's got that last name by marriage, she is uh, at least half Targaryen. Uh, and she she acquired the the silver hair that way. Uh, she continues. I expect the vast majority of us had a healthy sense of ick when Otto Hightower suggested his daughter Alicent might offer the king comfort in one of her mother's dresses. But I caught a sense of Alicent's own ambition when she's under the Godswood tree with Rhaenyra. She seems upset that Rhaenyra doesn't seem interested in securing her own place within the dynasty. It seems like Alicent could be playing her own game or else is quickly learning through osmosis from her father and other court players the importance of rising in rank in King's Landing. We think of that, Jim. Yeah, like a Marjorie type. Uh, I can see it. It's important to note that, like, I, first of all, I didn't necessarily get that. I felt like it was mm-hmm. definitely a girl being thrust into a position that she's uncomfortable with, but she doesn't want to disappoint her father. And I, I took that stuff in the Godswood more as her anxiety reflected through her father's anxiety about his place. You know, we talked in the main cast about him being a second son and, you know, he doesn't stand to inherit Jack. So he's looking to secure his own line and lineage, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they're both and it's important talking to note, about their father's uh, yeah. wishes at that point. Yeah, maybe. And it's important to note, like, uh, you know, in, in, in Game of Thrones universe, that young boys as, as young as 12, 13, 14 are considered men full grown and are pressed into battle. They're child soldiers. And some of them distinguish themselves at an early age, like uh, Barristan the Bold, I think, won his first tournament by uh, uh, wearing some mismatched armor and entering the list when he was 10. Uh, and they can attain glory and do well, but it's still fucked up. You know, they're still a child soldier. So, like, mm-hmm. even if you have a person like uh, Allison or Marjorie, uh, you know, being used in this way, and even if they have a uh, end up having a talent for it, if it works, it doesn't make it any less like, you know, they're, they're a product of their times. But also, it's like it's a it's a it's a rotten product, right? I mean, here's the thing that impressed me about Allison is that she goes mm-hmm. to Viserys with a history book. And it's very apparent, given what he's doing in that moment, carving a giant ass statue of right. uh, Dragonstone, that he is very interested in history, in right. legacy and dynasty and all that. So I think she's pretty smart um, and sharp when it comes to that stuff. So if she does try to make a career in uh, kingly politics here, she might have a good go of it. Yeah. It's uh, it's like like I said, it's it's kind of like Barris and the Bold being good at jousting at ten. It's it's uh, it's amazing, but also kind of horif- horrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, she continues when Damon is dressing his gold cloaks. He says, "When I took command of the watch, you were stray mongrels, starving and undisciplined. Now you're a pack of hounds, sated and honed for the hunt." The gold cloaks howl in response. Is this a nod to the Cleganes? Does House Clegane exist at this point? That's a good question. Hmm. It might be like a sly nod to the hounds or to the hound and to the Cleganes. But uh, the founder of House Clegane was a grand, the grandfather of Gregor and Sandor, uh, who served as the hmm. kennelmaster of Casterly Rock when he saved uh, uh, Tywin's father, Titus. Uh, out on excursion, uh, he he saved them uh, from an attack by one of those uh, uh, Westerosi lions you're always hearing about the, the the house sigil, ironically of Lannister. He was able to rescue him, although he lost his leg and three of his hounds in the attempt. So as a reward, he got lands and titles. Uh, hmm. That was not a long lived house, as far as we know. It went extinct 
when the two brothers killed themselves just three ge- two generations later. I think if I've done my math right, we're 173 years before Danny. Uh, the Cleganes would not be a thing. We're yeah. still a generation or two away from from all that stuff happening. So it's probably just, you know, he's just making a hunting illusion. Right. Mm-hmm. Finally. Nina says, I'm fascinated by the Valerians and what they hope to get out of this developing succession situation, especially with Rainus having already been spurned before. I did a quick search on them, and it looks like they're the most feared, respected, and established seafarers of the time. Does this mean the Greyjoys are currently a lesser house or a minor sea power? Do the Greyjoys even exist? So, just before Aegon's conquest, the Riverlands and the Iron Islands were a unified kingdom that was ruled over by the Ironborn, the Iron Islanders. And their king was uh, from a line called the Whores. H-O-A-R-E. And at the time of the conquest, they were um, led by King Heron, who lived in a newly finished gigantic castle, the the biggest fortification Westeros had ever seen that he called Hall, which, of course... He was roasted alive in when he refused to bend the knee to Aegon because Aegon just took Balerion there and fucking flamed it until the stones cracked, mm-hmm. which is why it's a, a giant ruin. And kind of even though it's in a very wealthy uh, 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 and, and fertile land, it's it's seen as kind of uh, a cursed, cursed place. Yeah. So, yeah, the Greyjoys uh, were the handpicked successors um, uh, to, to run the, the, the Iron Islands by Aegon. And that's kind of when they got their start. Although they're they're a they're they're a pretty old and of kingly descent of ancient Ironborn too. That's one of the reasons they got the job, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, the whores lost it, and the Greyjoys are in about a hundred years ago. Uh, Riri says, being one that likes to ask more refined, mature questions, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if, while flying over a dragon, a city has to relieve it. I'm sorry. Oh. By flying over a city, a dragon has to relieve itself. Is I mean, dragon what would happen? Is dragon excrement hot? Is it like dropping napalm mm. on a city? Can you use it for fertilizer or are there other added benefits? If uh, I can only assume that fine pedestrians cautiously eyeing the dragon flying overhead at the beginning of the episode were on the lookout for potential falling debris and making a shelter in place plan to avoid the horrors. They could potentially be jettisoned from any of the many dragon orifices. Man, this was a tough lore question to run down because <laughs> you tried? okay, yeah, no, I it, and it and it has been asked many many times. Uh, and people there, so there's a couple things. Dragons are internally hot. Uh, there's descriptions like when Drogon was getting stabbed in the uh, the the fighting pits of Marine that his wounds were like smoking like magma and the spear tips as they got pulled out were like melted. Uh, so like the internal temperature of the dragons is extremely high. And there were some theories that a dragon metabolism is so high and their body so furnace like that they essentially just burn their own waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that doesn't seem to make much sense from a biological process, but that was one theory. And then when the rogue prince was printed, uh, there is this passage where one Valerian boy is goofing around in the dragon pit with uh, a, Tar- a Targaryen cousin. And one of the princes thought that this guy is going to make enough noise or that he's going to get him in trouble. And he shoved them and the, the boy uh, was said to fall backwards into a pile of dragon droppings. Uh, so dragons do shit. There's they, they don't they they're not inherently caustic or napalm like if it comes oh, out of a, a they don't fresh say what dragon happens to the boy. 
No, I mean, it's just it's kind of like a joke. You know, he just falls into a pile of shit. Um, It doesn't burn him alive or anything like that. But, you know, who knows? This this these droppings might have been there for a while. Yeah. Uh, There was a couple of theories that that's how dragon glass was formed. That's the the fossilized (laughs) shit of dragon corpolites. But that has Uh not been proven. Uh, Yeah, I want to assume they're a lot like volcanoes that, you know, the, the shit just comes out hot, comes out fast. Uh, you better not be in the way of it or it'll melt you down. And then eventually, you know, it turns into that volcanic stone yeah, uh, of dragon glass. Yeah, I love it. It's really good. It's like pumice. You you can use it to sand Mm -hmm. your feet, you know, get rid of calluses. Yep. Hot shit. Uh, Moving on to Raphael says, I hate expected to hate this guy, Damon. He definitely has a punchable demeanor. However, although I agree with Kim about someone needing to enforce the rules in the tourney, all that stuff I found truly bizarre. I think Damon tripping Otto's son served two purposes. One, of course, was to humiliate Otto. However, I also think he spared the lad. I mean, if Damon is that badass warrior, I imagine he could have seriously hurt Otto's son or possibly killed him. Choosing Otto's son was just to mess with him, as the king said earlier in the episode. So, so far, a guy I expected hate comes across as much more complex. Maybe. I saw, I saw Damon get beat, not once, but twice. Um, yeah, by the same by Kristen. So, is he this badass? I don't know. If if so, the episode was playing coy with me because I did not take that away from that scene. I think the the other thing is like, I don't think he meant to kill Otto Hightower's son, but no. when you do shit like that, it's definitely something you're flirting with. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, and then also, like, the to-the-death stuff is, like, we talked about, is just not a thing. Like, you know, it's not one, you know, 12, 40 nights enter, one leaves kind of situation. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know that I completely go along with this. I think it's just to demonstrate that Damon is a bit of a shit. And this, you, you also got to think, if this is how he fights in a tournament, what would he be like in a battlefield? He's going to be the biggest gouger, biter, pocket sand, you know, like, he will not fight chivalrously like uh he's the opposite of jorah mormon talking about Rhaegar, about him fighting nobly fighting honorably and he died you know mm-hmm. like damon's gonna fight dirty he's gonna fight like a bastard and he's gonna be he's gonna be alive at the end of it uh but we'll see we'll see how that uh we'll see we'll see a bold strategy cotton we'll see how it plays out Peter C. has a couple questions, too. He says, Game of Thrones had five or six books from which to build a series upon. It also had a whole new universe to introduce viewers to. To my understanding, Hot D is based on fire and blood. Does this mean that we can expect the entire show to be much shorter, say one to two seasons in Game of Thrones, because there's a limited story to tell? Jim, have you have you seen any interviews with the showrunners talking about what they're targeting for a series length here? I haven't. Have they come out with that info? Yeah, in, a, in an interview with the uh, Hollywood, uh, the True Hollywood Reporter, or the Hollywood Reporter, rather, uh, Connell Sapochnik said they're planning for three to four seasons with the option to mm-hmm. anthologize. Yeah, yeah. You know, the House of the Dragon. There's just, there's there's 300 years of interesting Targaryen history to draw from, and if I imagine if it's successful, why would HBO? Why would anyone want to stop? Maybe you get different showrunners. You probably get new cast and all that. But mm-hmm. and I, I think that's about right. I think the dance. I think three. Four, if they want to stretch it to one of those bogus, you know, half seasons and stuff like that. But three seems about right from what my understanding of the plot is. But I'll know a lot more based on where we end up, you know, at the end of the season. That's when the the things I'm most curious about is where do we go out? Where is the pause that we hit uh, in in the, the, the this this tale? 
Yeah, Second you, question. You can only do so much with adding, you know, color to the scenario, right? Because you have to hit right. those those pacing beats. And yes. if you're not having the big moments at the end of the seasons, uh, that could feel unsatisfactory. Um, and there are only so many of those in the story. So, you know, before George was a, a book writer, he was a TV series writer. And mm-hmm. I feel like he's got like a script writer's, a screenwriter's eye. And like you see these big set pieces kind of regularly spaced out in the thing. And I, I, I can see the, there's like two or three probable stopping points. It just depends on which one they choose. Yeah. Um, question. The second is watching uh, hot D was great, especially as a fan of game of Thrones and a world or a song of ice and fire. As a book reader, I really loved all the world building. And as a show watcher, I love seeing all that come to life on the screen. With Hot D, the production value makes it visually appealing and brings a lot of familiarity in George's writing of sex, violence, and political intrigue. Even the characters felt familiar. Damon being a capable and handsome Jamie with a sexual appetite of Tyrion. Rhaenyra being a tomboy turned warrior like Arya. And as great as all this sounds, do you think there will be enough of that's new? Whether it's plot, world-building characters that will keep viewers like me hooked? Does this run the danger of feeling too much like Game of Thrones but dressed up as slightly different, uh, i.e. derivative? Perhaps it's too much early hand wringing, but sequels and spinoffs don't generally have a great track record in the history of television. What do you think, Jim? I I feel yeah. Um, This this does feel very much like Game of Thrones, and that's part of the reason I like it. I would say that the Game of Thrones appetite was not satiated uh, by the end of Game of Thrones. Like more and more and more people just kept watching this thing. Yeah. Uh, So if it is just like Game of Thrones, except. They don't fuck up the ending. I don't know why people would have a problem with that because clearly they wanted more Game of Thrones. They just, it was just a not like this scenario. Yeah. And there's a lots of different ways. Like uh, I, there was a really interesting thread and I think it was Game of, of Thrones talk, dreaming about, uh, you know, riffing off what Alan Sepinwall said about kind of the Downton Abbey of it all. They're like, what if you just leaned into that and you went back to the old king, a, a realm, a, a time of peace and stability? But there was still crises and crazy things happening. But it was this a more genteel pace? Like, what if you did like a just a no shit Downton Abbey King's Landing edition? And sure. it's just kind of like this soapy, royal, small folk kind of inter. I, I think that I mean, that would be a completely radically different way to look at Game of Thrones, but it'd be a fun one. Uh because if they keep leaning into like the Blackfire rebellions and the Duncan Egg stuff and Robert's Rebellion, it's just it's all goes back to succession and ambition mm-hmm. and overweening pride and hubris and but is that like goddamn that's a theme of a lot of different works, man. Uh so it all comes down to can they do you, are you going to care about the characters is the world going to feel believable because this is a universe as vast as Star Wars or Star Trek that has you know spawns you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of television and movies and books and I don't see why this couldn't so mm-hmm. but on the other hand if, if it's done ineptly or in too dry a manner and they don't sweat the characters then we might get sick of this after one season we'll just have to see Kim says, I'm so glad to have you guys back covering Westeros. It feels good to be back. We saw Otto Hightower sending a raven to Old Town. Have you any theories of what that message said and who is it for? It seems like small scenes like this have often future plot implications. If they make a point of showing it, it must be relevant. You know, I'm reminded of all the scenes of Tywin Lannister sending ravens leading up to the Red Wedding. Uh, 
what do you because I, I got to say that, like, I don't think I, I did a fair amount of like polling uh, what everybody's thinking on the Internet. And I don't there's not like one super banger theory of what this could be. And I think it's supposed yeah. to be mysterious. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, anytime you show us somebody sending a raven and don't show us the message, it's going to be mysterious inherently. Uh, yeah. Game, of, Game of Thrones taught me that. Uh, I, I wonder if there's some kind of backup plan. Like if the air, the male air doesn't come about, he's got some plan to enact. And I know he's sitting this home, but I don't, I don't know who's there. Right. Like you said in the, the full recap podcast, mm-hmm. his, his, the Lords are all here. His son is yeah. here. Everyone who's anyone is right. here at King's Landing to participate in this tournament. So if he were sending it back, it, it necessarily be to someone who wouldn't be involved in the tournament. So it could be like a maester or, or s- someone of other import in a different arena. Who's not like going to go to battle. Um, it could be his family. It, but, but to what end there? I have no idea. Um, yeah. Th- this feels like the contingency plan. If the King mm-hmm. doesn't have a new heir. Yeah, I mean, if he's thinking of the good of the realm, he's probably thinking, I got a king with no heir. If this Rhaenyra thing doesn't work out, you know, Viserys is not super old. Can we get him? You know, is there who, who are the other most eligible ladies of the land? You know, if he doesn't go for Alicent, is there like, I don't know exactly how many angles he's calculating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the thing that I think is tantalizing is there's been this long held kind of theory rumor that the Maesters had more than a little to do with the downfall of the Targaryens, especially with their dragons. Now, don't get me wrong. Targaryens did a bang up job killing their own damn dragons, as mm-hmm. we will see in this episode, uh, th- these these episodes to come. But like there is a point where all the dragons started being sickly and shriveled and deformed and then stopped hatching and getting older and less and more infirm. And there's been a long, like there's, there's been a long stated theory that the maesters had something to do with like, we don't like these untidy magical beings fucking up with our rational world. We don't like the imbalance. We don't like what it does to the realm. We're going to just kind of manage this whole thing. Um, So unmaesterly. Yeah, it's kind of a direct violation of yeah. their, but like, you know, what, how do the maesters see themselves deep down? Do they really see themselves sure. as meek kind of stewards to hold, or do they really see themselves as more of the people who are uh, in front of the chalkboard, you know, drawing their equations and move? I, I don't know. And again, I can't, you know, I, I, I don't really think they're going to go into all that, but that's the one that would be like, if they're starting to, do this like long term generational conspiracy against the ro- royal house. It would be interesting if, if uh, that, that were to, to play in, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, that's not something that's like right there in the text. It's something that's kind of hinted about. Uh, Sheena says, Hey guys, I too is curious about why hot D didn't have a proper opening credit sequence in the episode. Like game of Thrones did since that was kind of a staple of the original show. But I remembered that you guys would sometimes mention in the podcast that just changing one thing on the Game of Thrones credits would cost a ton of money, sometimes to the detriment of other aspects of the episode. So maybe this is why Hot D has decided to forgo an elaborate opening credit sequence. Your thoughts? I, I, I think we are worried over nothing because apparently there's uh, uh, 
Condola said in interviews that no, this is just like we just want to get right to the story. And we thought okay. that would be like there's no point where we could cut away to that and it wouldn't feel indulgent. So there will be an intro. We will get to see it this week. We just didn't have one. And uh, I, I also would I love to go through because like I reported uncritically a lot of what I consider bullshit now about, well, we can't have dire wolves because it's so expensive. See, I think mm. that's a lot of this stuff was just yeah. bullshit that they said just because they wanted to dodge criticism because how fucking hard is it to change that intro sequence? You know, uh, if you sure it, it's, you it's gotta, not on the order of creating a dragon on screen. Certainly. <laughs> sure. Like you gotta you gotta loop a few more dun dun da da dun dun da da and you gotta pay someone to animate a clockwork thing and like is that mm-hmm. equal to three seconds of direwolf footage? I don't know. I don't know. So we're we're gonna get an intro and we should get it this week, according to all accounts. Also, I would say of course it would be indulgent. Of course it would be. Intros are indulgent, especially the Game of Thrones intro was incredibly indulgent. Changing it every yeah. week as as the scenario uh, as the locations change is incredibly indulgent, but that's part of what made the world feel cool. Uh, here's another thing. Um, what was so vital about the credit sequence in the early goings of Game of Thrones is because you would not know where the fuck you were. True. Yeah. Like it's like, oh, there's the wall and the house. Here's how it relates to Winterfell. And here's how it relates to the Vale. And here's how it relates to. And oh, we're going over this narrow sea. We're across a whole another continent. Oh, here's where Cal Drogo and Danny's hanging out. We were just in King's Landing. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of this episode, Damon's going to the Vale. Presumably, we're going to get see some of this crab feeder guy in the Stepstones off of Dorne. There might be need for like, hey, we're going to go to this location and this location. We're going to deal with the Triarchy. That's what is that? Tyrosh and Mir and Lys, I think uh, we might see some of these locations and it might be more necessary the next episode, too. But again, yeah. that's all speculation. I, I don't know that we'll actually go to those places. I'm just saying that, like, it seems likely that we had everyone together and now there's evidence that we're going to expand the scope of the story and it might be more necessary. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Chris says, hey, guys, for my first question this season, I'm going to throw it out there. Why isn't there a push for King Viserys to take a bride of child childbearing age? He's certainly not the oldest ruler that we've seen take a young bride in the series. Is it simply a shortage of Targaryen noblewomen in Westeros? And second... Less importantly, was I the only one who noticed Queen Ama had erotic tapestries hanging in her birthing chamber? Uh, oh, I I certainly didn't notice. I didn't notice either. Something that Dave and Chin were uh, Dave and Chin, Dave and Kim <laughs> uh-huh. were talking about on a cast of Kings that uh, Kim noticed it, and she asked. Uh, she had an interview with Millie Alcock, and I guess the two girls, I guess they're women. They're like in their twenties, even though they're fourteen on the show. Mm-hmm. They said, "Yeah, no, there was a lot of erotic." Uh, tapestries and some that I didn't make on can't uh, feature drag humans having sex with dragons, dragons having sex okay. with humans. Those those fucking Targaryens, man. <laughs> which which ties in. There's some Targaryen theories that say that the way we got Valerians were you know essentially they're the children of dragons, or depending on how much hubris the the Targaryen has, it might be the other way around. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Valerian's fucked around and, and made dragon children. So there is that idea. And, and I'm like, yeah, I want to keep my eyes peeled for more erotic dragon fucking. But uh, 
No, and I, I think there, there, there will. I mean, I think there. That's the if if the realm won't take Rhaenyra, the natural thing to do is to get this king who's still, you know, you can father children into your your old age if you're a man, uh, to get him, get him uh, hooked up with some young fertile Targaryen princess and have him kick out a few heirs. Yeah, that'd be a one one way to hit the eject button on Damon too. So yeah, we'll sense. see how that plays and and. And Otto, not to put too fine a point in it, is I think already throwing his hat into, I guess, Allison's hat into that ring. Yeah, I would think, though, if it was on Viserys's mind, he would not necessarily have decided to name Rhaenyra his his heir. That, I, that I, felt like a very hasty decision, didn't it? Yeah, although, I mean, somebody needs to be heir. I, I'm with the council on this. Like, we can't have an heirless king. Uh, or have yeah. it unsettled because then there's the potential for war if you die, if something happens to you. Yeah. But yeah, yeah you can kind of leave the state of the air as is. And then in the background, be like, okay, I need to find a new wife. I need to make a new air. And this will all sort itself out eventually, as long as I live. I don't think it'd be, it'd be a problem because like, again, Viserys, you're supposed to understand that, like, you know, we see the private side of him. But from the realm's perspective, he's a very popular, very powerful, very wealthy Targaryen and there would be tons of families that would throw any number of daughters at him mm-hmm. so it uh, it's definitely a thing that, that they they might explore um, Misty has a couple of observations did you notice a childbirth scene cutting back to the joust tourney there is a really good aerialist shot of the joust arena and it's clearly in the shape of a vulva or female genitalia <laughs> okay yeah uh, symbolizing the birthing is our battleground comment from Ama. Very mm-hmm. well done, or very clever symbolism. Very well done. I didn't put that two and two together, right. but yeah, yeah, it definitely has a a certain parenthetical shape. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If they if they had the king's box at the very top of one end of it, you know, in a slightly <laughs> that yeah yeah. Uh-huh. Also, so, it's a map of the uh, for the men of the realm to follow if they want to, but mm-hmm. uh. No, I, I didn't catch that, but that's that's a good point. I got to think it's intentional because they were definitely making that direct, you yeah. know, contrast comparison. Uh, moving on to Yannick from Denmark says, I'm curious about what you think of Otto Hightower. We see him in the show presented as this composed, intelligent hand of the king, but are his motives sinister besides wanting to send Damon away from court? Otto is clear in that he wants Rhaenyra to be the new heir rather than Rhaenys, uh, Valerian. In a creepy moment, he tells his daughter Alicent uh, to go to the king's chambers, the implied purpose of which is to sleep with him. But when she shows up, she's char- carrying a huge history book. I know how important the histories are to you, she says, and we, we never hear which history she reads to him at this vulnerable time. Otto then uses Viserys' grief to get his way by telling Viserys about how Damon toasted the heir for a day in the whorehouse. Again, crucially, as Aaron pointed out, we never hear what's actually said. Also, Damon never confirms it when uh, confronted by Viserys in the throne room. He says something like, we all grieve in our different ways. In the next scene, Viserys takes Rhaenyra to the Dragon Skull room and tells her she is to be his heir. Specifically, he refers to the histories when explaining it all to her. A reading of this is the Hightower orchestrated this through cunning and his knowledge of uh, the king. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I mean, that makes manip- a lot of sense. I, I, I don't know if Otto told... I, I never saw Otto tell her to get this book. I simply saw him tell her to go to him wearing the dress, which she does. Uh-huh. So I assumed that this was um, Alicent herself know, knowing, understanding the king. Um and, and I agree if she is trying like explicitly to get with him, 
I would say she's playing a little bit of a, a, a slow play here, which yeah. is probably smart given the circumstances. To me, I, it felt to me like she was following the letter of her father's instructions without mm-hmm. the spirit. Like she was literally there staying as far away from Viserys, like trying to engage on a comfort, like a human comfort level. I'm sorry this happened yeah, to you. Yeah. Here's your favorite thing. Let me read it to you. Um, yeah, I don't think she's particularly excited about being sent to bang this king. No, her best friend's dad. That's yeah. pretty cringe, man. That's <laughs> weird. Uh, it is strange, though, that she would take the big book of Targaryens having sex with dragons to read to him. That was a little, uh, uh, that was a choice for sure. The, the, the selected erotic tapestries of, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, of, uh, the red keep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's playing all the angles. Gary V says to clear up some confusion about the family tree and both the season preview podcast and your instant take, you misidentified the relationship between the old King Jaehaerys and his eventual heir Viserys. Preview podcast, you identified Viserys as well as Rhaenys as children of the old king in episode one podcast as his nephew. Viserys is, in fact, the grandson of King Jaehaerys by way of Jaehaerys' second dead son. Rhaenys is the more direct descendant or granddaughter of Jaehaerys by way of Jaehaerys' first also dead son, making Rhaenys and Viserys first cousins. Yeah. Oh. I I fucked that up. I I have a hard time keeping track of the succession. Um, But you're you're right. Rhaenys... Rainus, as we like to call her, was passed over effectively twice. Um, when the first king, son, king's son and heir dies, the law of is a primogenitor is where it's like you'd think that like, well, then the king's second uh, son would go. Sure. But actually, you go all the way down that first son's line. If he has an heir, then it's not the king's brother that takes the heir. It's it's you know, this is Lion King shit. Yeah, you know, Simba sure. wrecked scars potential to be king right um and rainier uh uh, rainus was right there uh she was the eldest heir to that first son's uh you know claim and she was passed over and then at the great council she was passed over again so she was actually the queen to almost she was the queen that never was twice uh and and you're right I'll, i'll try to keep that in mind uh going going forward because guys, guys, God knows, God knows that uh, Gurm gets really pissy when you skip a Targaryen uh, yeah. succession. Uh, Matthew says, "Is Viserys' wife also his sister?" They never make a point to mention it, but all the silver hair tends uh, to lead me to believe that. I just want to confirm. I'm assuming that all silver-haired people are related. Uh, you're not wrong by saying they're related eventually in some way, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Queen Amma's mother was the princess Dela Targaryen, who, as I mentioned before, married Lord Roderick Aaron of the Vale. So she is the that the Dela was the daughter of Jaehaerys, which I think and I'm always shaking. That's so if you're that that makes you cousins, right? That's a definition of cousins. Your uncle, your uncle or your aunt's children are your cousins Uh and you're all grandkids of the grand. Yeah, I think they're I think I think they're cousins. Okay. So not as close as your average Targaryen relationship, but (laughs) too close for a lot of our comfort, I think. Yeah. Kim has a a few questions for us. Um, We got a lot of our, we got a lot of perspectives on this. This is about the decision that Viserys makes with this queen. 
She wonders, is there ever a scenario on the table in which Ama made it out of that whole situation alive? When the maester tells Varys he has no choice or has a choice to make to save one or lose both, I didn't think that implied Viserys had a choice on who he could save. The baby was breached and can't be repositioned. Pushing is futile and it's pretty much game over for baby and mother both in that world, short of some miracle. I think the only one who had a chance to make it through this alive was the baby, which I thought was implied by the maester's comments on the procedure. Like you, I also had the hot take that Viserys was a selfish monster for making the decision he did. Once my emotions and uterus unclinched after that scene, uh, logic did kick in. Viserys had no choice but to do what he did. If Aima was going to die either way, but there was a chance a son could be born to secure the succession and stabilize the realm as king, uh, whose utmost responsibility is to said realm, Viserys had to do what he did. It was terrible and utterly horrific choice to make. And as he's also a human who I think truly loved his wife, I believe the the trauma of that experience is going to take its toll on his mental state, especially since it was ultimately all for naught. Um, I talked with this uh, with a guy named Christopher on Twitter. Uh, I got some uh, emails from doctors that had different opinions on it. So the exact dialogue the maester says mm-hmm. during a difficult birth, it sometimes becomes impossible or becomes necessary for a father to make an impossible choice to sacrifice one or lose them both. There's a chance we can save the child. Uh, the technique is taught at the Citadel, which involves cutting directly into the womb to free the infant, but the resulting blood loss dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. I, and I feel like many others interpreted to sacrifice one as being a binary choice. You can choose to save the mother or you can choose to save the child, or you can not make a choice in a trolley problem kind of way and lose them both. That is apparently not I interpreted. It. So I interpret my it qu- as we can save this child and kill your wife, or we can leave it up to the gods is what he says about whether or not either of them will survive if we do nothing. So I think that's a reasonable and probably correct interpretation. But the fact that so many people got that confused um, sure. and I so, so there's there's two things and you always got to think about this in terms of fantasy. It's like, what is the analog here? So like if, if we're talking about a medieval cesarean section, that's a low percentage play for the for the mother. A hundred percent. Yeah. I will not say that at a, a, a no point a woman didn't survive that. But like just with the infection alone, it's got to be pretty fucking yeah. low. Yeah, but the way they the way I honestly believe that there was like I didn't know what kind of medieval and it's other thing is like so fantasy Game of Thrones has things that real life medieval times did not have. Uh, they have a very effective, safe abortificant uh, moon's tea where a woman can drink that and she just doesn't have to worry about having a child. Uh, that's not I don't think that has any kind of historical analog in, in the real world uh, also, back in prob- medieval times. Probably not going to work at this point. Probably not. The yeah, solution it's too to this late. Problem. <laughs> it's too late. But like I was yeah. thinking like, you know, what the, can the maesters do? Can they do some kind of like primitive dilation and extraction type of proceedings? Like which would be gruesome. They would be essentially hacking apart this baby who's crowning uh, mm-hmm. or breaching. Uh, but I'm like, I don't I don't know that it's not possible that you could do that. And like I said, it was presented as a choice because like I I'm I'm kind of with um, Kim here is like, how was this phrased as an impossible choice? If it's like you are going to lose both of them. But if you mm-hmm. take action now, you can save the child. Right. I think it's That's still not a pretty choice f- at all. Really? Not. No, I, I it's it's much more of like he's being forced to do something that's terrible. Uh, yeah. and I also think it is pretty reprehensible how they, they treat the Ama of this this whole question. Oh, but like, yeah. 
I, I thought it was like a truly a choice. He could choose to save his wife or he could choose to save the baby. Apparently that wasn't as intended. And this is reminds me of the situation where uh, fucking Alex Graves uh, direct an episode where Jamie Lannister clearly raped a sister. But then in all the after materials, like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a really tricky consensual matter. Well, it was in the book, but you shot a rape, dude. Uh, I sometimes wonder if like the, the intended messaging got, got, got lost. It's because it certainly was confusing. I think to people, the way it was phrased. Oh yeah. I had, I feel like I took a third path here, which was you can make a choice to save the child or maybe they'll both live if we do nothing (laughs) like Leave it up to the gods to me is yeah. not a statement that says, oh, they're both going to die. It's more True. like we just won't be able to really affect the outcome. And but it's also it's could be, good, but maybe they'll survive. We don't know. It also could be like leave it up to gods is like it'll take a miracle to save the child. This is another way you could say it. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, this caused a lot of and, and uh, I think. You know, there's room to say that what happened to Ama was terrible, and there's room to say that Viserys was kind of forced into it. Um, and there mm-hmm. was, but I, it's just, it's just weird phrasing it like a choice when it's like that's like a trolley problem. It's like if you throw one switch, one person uh, dies and one person lives, and if you don't throw the switch, both of them die. Well. Right. That's not a and and also you don't get to choose who dies. It's like there's definitely one going to live, one going to die, or they both die. Like that's mm-hmm. that's not really an ethical or moral dilemma in the strictest right. sense of the word. It's it's it sucks and it's going to be painful. And I imagine there's tons of survivors guilt and all kinds of things going on there. But I don't know. It's too bad because like I said, it's it's a pivotal scene and I feel like it's just a little bit narratively clumsy. But then I'm sure there's a lot of exasperated. You know, we had a lot of doctor. Uh, at least one doctor wrote in. It's like there is zero chance of her successfully delivering a, bur- a breached birth and there was no way to get that baby out without killing it. So it's like, that doesn't seem like gotcha. a choice. Yeah. Moving on to Jack. This was a question that came up in the uh, the instant talk portion, I believe. In episode one, when Viserys says this family already has its Vicinia, he's referring to Damon. I mentioned it was mm-hmm. Rhaenys uh, because I thought, you know, she was kind of the warrior woman. Uh you know, maybe chafing that she didn't get the the, the leadership role of the kingdom. Um, but he says the problem was that the Amos actress says the line incorrectly, at least according to Jack. She's supposed to say, where is your brother, Damon? As in speaking of your brother, Damon, where the hell is he? When she actually said it, where's your brother, Damon? Like, it's just a question, like a separate line of di- dialogue. Uh, but you're supposed to see them as connected. Like, oh, we've huh. already got her Vicinia. Okay. Oh, speak. Oh, where where is your brother? Speaking of him, and it just got lost in the line reading. Gotcha. But as Jack himself points out, it seems wild that they didn't catch that on set. You know, between the actor, the director, the editor, everybody there, like script mm-hmm. supervisor, nobody got like you're supposed to put you put the emphasis on the wrong syllaba there, Ama. You need to you need to redo that, but. That seems that seems uh, likely. And Austin wrote in concurring, saying, while Rhaenys and Rhaenyra are both strong warrior minded women, I think Viserys considers Daemon the Visinia because of the touch of madness he has often seen in Targaryens. Visinia was the mother of Magor the Cruel and had no small part in him earning that title, if I'm remembering correctly. Daemon also wields dark sister Visinia's blade, which is, I think, the thing that really, mm. really kind of like caps it off there. So and there was just a demonstration well of, of how warlike he can be, right? With the city watch. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fresh in his mind. Um, 
Al wonders, one quick thought I had upon rewatch of episode one, is Viserys actually fireproof to a degree that Danny was? I only ask because when the maesters are inspecting his back wound, one recommends cauterizing it. <laughs> well, I thought if Viserys knew he is fireproof, he'd reboof the reboof. He'd reboof the idea. Yeah. Instead, he seems almost annoyed with the process. Um, I'll have to use wildfire to get it done. But yeah, this, this is something I had to say like once a season on the old spoiler <laughs> podcast. But like uh-huh. it's wild because from George's perspective, the Targaryens being fireproof was not a thing. He was intended that to be a one time magical intervention in Danny's life. The double D's then continually leaned into it. Like Danny likes her her bath hot. Danny can pick a dragon egg that's been on a brazier and and suffer no harm. Danny can literally walk out of a burning and fucking inferno uh, and be the sole mm-hmm. survivor. And it seems we talked about how much more involved Gurm is in all this that he has given his blessing to at least flirt with this fucking theory again. Yeah, because of the candle scene, right? Yes. Yeah. But if Targaryens can't get burnt, how do you cauterize their fucking wounds? You know, do you use dragon fire? Sure. You get, you yeah, get Vagar out there. <laughs> you put Valerian steel all over his back, except for uh-huh. one small point you know, where you stick the boil through there and, and you just, you nah, just put a little know. dragon shit on top of it. There you go. Right yeah. You get a dragon shit poultice. You mix it up. You throw it on. Yeah. You get that fresh <laughs> and hot. You throw it on there. Yep. I. I, I this is the thing I, this was this is really puzzling because I felt like George was annoyed by this shit and this is more his baby and this but but I the the only thing I would say is that yeah you got the cauterization inconsistency and also you can hold your hand over a candle he wasn't like it's just a it's just it's, an unforced error if they're not trying to say hey he's a little fireproof it's an unforced error with you could you could have him messing with a blade you could have him doing any number of things that show how distraught he is and ha- and like what's going through his head without it relating to fire or heat yeah it's a, it's a clear like i said flirtation it's not confirmation but they're definitely leaning in that direction so yeah we'll see how it plays out maybe targaryens being a true true targaryens not all targaryens a true targaryen <laughs> uh-huh. true blood of the dragon being fire uh, fireproof might be a thing um marisa says while different in ways both obvious and subtle westeros is still modeled in medieval europe at several points i feel like you overestimate the agency allowed to women in westeros whose positions didn't seem to be all that different from the relevant historical period courtly manners generally don't allow for example a lady to refuse the request to carry her favor from a challenger specifically in the case of allison and damon allison's a good-mannered unmarried young lady whose job in a family is to make a good impression so she'll be useful on the marriage market that means not being say openly disagreeable disagreeable telling a man no or of questionable judgment telling a prince of the royal bloodline no Cersei, Danny, and Sansa were all atypical women who ruled in their own right, but as shown by the hesitation to name a female heir over two successive generations of Targaryens, we can likely still presume that women are largely considered pawns in the game, which doesn't allow stepping out of line. This is true, but they do it time and time again in these shows. Yeah, so like the, the notable exceptions the that you just he just <laughs> right, mentioned. Right. Yeah, I, I feel you. Yes, there, there's a lot of like obviously patriarchy stuff tied up in this and they play with those concepts and I don't know where to draw the lines because they play with them 
so often. Well, that's the other thing is like it's I think it's useful to say like, okay, well, this is uh, analog of the War of the Roses or this is a story of the Henry uh-huh. the, the first or and and okay, this is probably medieval Europe and this is probably medieval. But like it's also fantasy and we are modern audiences. And I think it's fair to critique of like, well, where does the fantasy stop and begin and end? You know, if you're doing dragons, why not have a couple of black folk be Targaryens? If you're doing that, why not have a couple women having atypical positions of power like Cersei, like Danny, like Sansa, like Arya, you know? Um, And since Game of Thrones tends to zig in that way, I think it's entire. It's pretty fair to 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 to, you know, ask like where where does the where does the fantasy uh, end, you know, where what is realistic, what's not realistic, especially when a lot of lay people will talk confidently about what medieval Europe was like and not like. And you talk to a real historian and like, well, no, that's crazy. That's actually super ahistorical. The attitude you're talking about, because our conception and I would say are I'm talking about Americans. I'm not sure if you are or not, but like it's stuff we've seen in movies and read in books more mm-hmm. than a studious historical study of the the records and the cultures and religions of the time right so or or at best it's more complicated than that you know yes yes that was a general yeah. rule but it's always more complicated let's move on to caleb t he says correct if i'm wrong but is the fact that humans meddling with dragons was the cause of the doom of valeria new information i've not heard this theory before it was mentioned in hot d episode one and was kind of shocked that such a mysterious event was mentioned in a one-off line I hope we get more info about the doom in the future. Jim, you might not know it, but this is about to kick off the first Maester's Corner. Of course, no Maester's capable of rendering an opinion free of conditions, are they now? So joining me in this first Maester's Corner is uh, Maester Anthony himself, who's been uh, keeping the Iron Throne warm during the long off-season between Game Indeed. of Thrones. Indeed. Got, got a few cuts. You did? Just a few. Is, there, yeah. is, any, is, any, is any festering? Are you going to have to get cauterized? <laughs> Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Not, not a great, not a great king. Uh, well, I mean, you're a terrible king. You're a maester. What are you doing? You don't can't hold lands and titles. That's yeah, you should, I should, be, should never sat down. That's the whole. For you, sure. you, you pulled a Jamie Lannister and then see what happened. Uh, but yeah, he's been doing the Bukaloo, which is a chapter by chapter breakdown of Game of Thrones. Coincidentally, what what a what what a what a wild coincidence that you kind of yeah. r- uh, ran out of material right as House of the Dragon uh, was. Yeah, was, we just finished book one. Uh, I think that dropped this morning. Yeah, uh, as we're recording. And uh, you're also while we have uh, retaken the uh, House of the Dragon feed by force, you also have a double dragon feed where you and uh, Steve, your co-host, are going to be talking about House of the Dragon and stuff. So this is kind of like um, miniature deep lore dives. Um, I'm not sure if we'll have one for every uh, week or we might take a tricky piece of lore feedback uh, from time to time. But we've both prepared uh, a little, mm-hmm. a, a little lecture, a little maester symposium for each other, and mm-hmm. Anthony, uh, and it's all relevant to the episode, and it's all non-spoiler. So these should just enhance your enjoyment of the series. It should not spoil anything. Um, right. What do you got for us? Well, what, what, I think what chain, before, what link did you forge yeah, in the chain today? I think before I do my thing, I, I think I ought to say that. I, I, first and foremost, I'm a fan, and I'm not just a 
Ice and Fire fan. I'm a Bald Move fan. And I, I just have to say, it's nice to have you back. It's really nice to have you back. That is super uh, sweet. And it's, yeah. it's, it's obviously good to be back, too. I kind of feel like as a fandom, we view Martin as our, our mother. You know, he, he birthed he birthed the stories, right? Uh-huh. And then for about nine and a half seasons, you know, Aaron was our mother. And he, he, you know, he kind of nurtured us and he grew us up. And, uh, you know, we, we were sort of, you know, we were just about teenagers, not quite teenagers, when uh, Aaron decided he was going to kick off. <laughs> <laughs> and he was out on the show and it was going to be a hate wash at the end of season eight. And I just want to say, it's just so nice to have our mother back. It's, it's just so it's, it's comforting. Well, don't, don't get it twisted. I've not forgot how to put on the Lord's <laughs> face. So if I, if I have to bear steel on my lap uh, for this show, I will. But so far, so far, uh, All right. I'm, I'm incredibly pleased with what we've got, but thank you. That's, All right. That's, well, that's I'll write it as praise. long as I, <laughs> Yeah, I'll write it as long as it's there to be written. So, um, all right, I want to talk about the Doom of Valyria here. I, I just thought it was fascinating that Viserys, in his little preamble to Rhaenyra, uh, said that dragon magic is something that they should have never messed with, and it's one that caused the doom of Old Valyria. And I thought, it's kind of trippy that you've got this dragon lord, like the dragon lord. He's the king of the realm, right? Who once flew the biggest and baddest dragon. Mm-hmm. This guy is a little dragon dubious. And I thought, this is really interesting. He's a and dragon truther. More, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And he's, I think he's, he's putting a bit of confidence to the definitive sort of the definitive truth on what caused the doom which we'd never gotten before you know so the doom was always kind of like eh, well, no one really knows what i mean it was it was 14 volcanoes but we don't know what caused these volcanoes and he basically blames the dragons right so th- to me that was fascinating all right, so I thought I'd do a little dig into World of Ice and Fire and see what I could come up with. And I think what I came up with will help us kind of enhance our enjoyment of this first episode a bit. All right. Okay. So the people of Old Valyria claimed that the dragons were children of the volcanoes. That that was that was their view. The the dragons are volcano spawn. Okay. And it's sort of like it sounds a little hocus pocus. It sounds a little bit like, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe the maybe the maesters of old town would be like, mm, they're kind of animals. They probably come <laughs> from other animals. You yeah, they they are not mineral nor vegetable. These are animal for sure. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. But the people of old Valeria believed this to be true. And, you know, that they string that they sprang forth from the 14 flames. Okay, so I think that this 
kind of explains Viserys' belief about the doom. You know, this episode is all about hammering home the point that nothing can take down the ruling family except for the ruling family, right? It's all about internal conflict. We're, right. we're told that, we're bookended that at the beginning of the episode, and we're given that, I think, here at the end here, too. Okay. So that's the context for Viserys, what Viserys says about the, the doom and the danger of dragons and magic and all that business. So let's take the Valyrians at their word, right? So let's say that the dragons are indeed volcano spawn. Okay, so according to A World of Ice and Fire, the doom of Valyria was all 14 volcanoes erupting at once. And because of this, we're given this little detail that the debris that came out of those 14 flames consumed many of the dragons above. Okay, if that's true... What do we have? In essence, we have dragon magic destroying dragon magic, Mm. which I think is what is sort of motivating Viserys here. He believes that dragons come from the mountains and the mountains destroyed the dragons. So they basically we have magic of the, the mountains destroying other magic of the mountains. And this is exactly what Viserys is trying to warn his daughter about dragons killing dragons or dragon magic killing dragons. Right. So. All right. So I think what. In order to understand this correctly, we need to view Viserys as something of an unreliable narrator. You know, he he's one voice in a chorus of voices, and he, he's talking like he's an authority, right? Sure. Um, but he is still just one guy, right? And we know from all of these writings that some that everyone in their own way is, a, is an unreliable narrator. So from a storytelling point of view, the important thing is not whether the legend is true. It's how the legend is motivating these key characters. So Viserys, it seems... Excuse me. Viserys, it seems to be motivated by this myth. And he's bought into the lore. So much so that he's convinced that dragon magic is flawed and fatal from the start. In other words, because of his interpretation of the doom, he's sort of dragon dubious. And I think that the I think that the show is trying to tell us that because of this, he's a little bit of a weak king, right? Mm. And and so I thought that that helped me understand some of what his motivations are in the show and why he's cautioning his daughter about this sort of internal fatal flaw of trying to sort of buy into the dragon illusion. It's interesting because like, you know, a lot of times Martin uses dragons as kind of like a stand in for nuclear weapons, you know, like the, right. the, and uh, yeah. it would be similar to uh, one of the nuclear powers just decide, you know, we should have never invented these things. We shouldn't use them and dismantle unilaterally disarming 
which would put one in the real world at a, at a, at a risk of, you know, nuclear annihilation because it's, it's a deterrent too. So are you arguing that, uh, you know, his, his, his dubious, his dragon dubiosity is going to make him reluctant to take the, the moves that he might need to yeah, stave maybe off a rebellion so. or, uh, he sounds a little bit. Vasir sounds a little bit about like Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer after I, I have become dragon destroyer of worlds, <laughs> right? So I think it's a little bit like if an, the inventor of the nuclear bomb decided, okay, we've invented this, and now this magic is in the world, and then, but we've also decided never to use it. So now it's like it's sort of this dark magic released on the world, and now that the person. I guess you could say that the person who wields it is too weak to use it. And I think that from one point of view, you could say, well, that's kind of a noble decision you've made too late. Mm. Right. Right. And I think from another, you know, another point of view, you could just say, well, that's just foolish. Right. So anyway, that's what I got. That's what I got. And I think that that helps us understand a little bit of his motives. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how uh, this all works out uh, during the season. I appreciate the Doom of Valeria. I also um, had a topic that's focused more on Essos and the things going on over there. And it's the topic of Nymeria. You know, we have heard of Nymeria in the show before. Uh, Most famously, it was the name of Arya's direwolf. And it was kind of a personal hero of hers. And we see it seems like it's a baby personal hero of Rhaenyra. And yeah. probably the, the patron saint of all little girls in Westeros that dream of doing more than birthing children to swing a sword and to attain glory and to command men and armies. Uh, Nymeria. Yeah, yeah. Nymeria is kind of where it's at. She's uh, quite literally a warrior princess in the mold of Xenia or perhaps uh, Bodica. Is that how you pronounce that the first century Celtic woman who resisted the Romans? Uh, kind of captured the uh, imagination of, of yeah. The- I don't think I've ever heard that. Uh, ta- uh, I don't think I've ever tried to say it out loud before. So I yeah, I, we'll I, just did some, I did some. I did. Well, I was hoping you will you, but yeah, I, I did some. I think it's Bodica, but it could. I could okay. be wrong. I don't have a Celtic tongue. Uh, sure. <laughs> so according to the maesters who have studied these things, she wasn't a warrior in the truest sense of the word, but she did lead her people. Uh, she's at very least a battlefield commander that issued orders and strategy and uh, was the unquestioned ruler of a city. Um, and she lived like the rest of her people, the Roinar, along the banks of the mighty Roin River in Essos. So just to get your bearings, you know, the Roin originated just south of Bravos and flowed south until its mouth disgorged into the summer sea near Volantis. So if you imagine the continent of Essos as the European continent, just to kind of get your bearings straight, the Roin would have flowed essentially on the border of Portugal and Spain. You know, yeah. What are the oldest cultures of Essos, right? Yeah, and and they uh, the 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 um, and then you you notice that like the Portugal part would be the disputed lands that Corliss was you know when he pulled up that map. Uh, so about eight hundred years ago, as of the time of the House of the Dragon, or about a thousand years ago in in, in Danny's time in, in Game of Thrones, uh, the Valerians turned a trade war 
into a war war by attacking the Rhoynish port city of Sarhoy. They had some spice conflict about who was going to control the spice, the spice trade, and um, the things got pugilistic, and the Rhoynar decided not to take this lying down. And Nymeria ruled her own city in Nysar, along the Rhoyne, where she advised caution and calm, believing this war to be one that her people couldn't win, because they didn't have dragons, and the Valerians had dragons but she was shouted down even her own warriors wanted to join the cause because they're not going to put up with this uh, valerian Mm -hmm. bullshit uh and the battle was a disaster despite having some initial successes attacking uh, valerian outposts and remote cities uh the valerian freehold responded by sending not three not 30 but 300 dragons against mm-hmm. Roynar and essentially just started working their way down the, sur- the, 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 the river burning and enslaving everything that remained not on fire. Uh, so Namiria seeing the results and all this death and destruction heading down the river towards her people. She says, this is untenable. She gathered 10,000 of her ships and it took all of her people which at this point was mostly women and children and old men, uh, which might remind you of some other person fleeing uh, some, some other d- d- mm-hmm. d- disaster mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and took to the seas. Um, she spent three to five years wandering the southern seas. She tried to land on this island and was repulsed by I- pirates. She tried landing on these other island and was repulsed by disease. Uh, you know, like uh, she lands there, there's even a story of her landing in Nanth, which was, um, uh, Miss Andy's, you know, people that had the poison butterflies and oh, North, yeah, North, North, right. That, yeah. that ended badly with all the poison butterflies and she's just, you know, they're just being hounded and pursued and of one place or another and they can't find a home. So after these years of wandering, uh, she finally makes it to Dorne, across the step zones, all the way to Dorne, which at the time was this dry desert land kind of ruled by these petty rival kings. They didn't really have their their stuff together. Fairly poor kingdom. Uh, and she found there a man named Mors Martell, who saw both her great beauty and the fact that she had... Uh, you know, still uh, even in diminished capacity, a powerful warriors that would would increase his host uh, up to tenfold. Uh, she was smart. She was resourceful. Uh, they had wealth and technology and armor and arms far in advance of anything that they had in West uh, Westeros at the time. Uh, so they decided to get married. Uh, and they united the two people. And this is how, you know, if you've ever heard the the king or the queen of Westeros described as the king or queen of the First Men and the Andals and the Roinar, this is how the Roinar, right. the, that's the third racial group of, of men that uh, make up the population of, of Westeros. Right. Yeah. Uh, so now when the Miria landed at Dorne, she famously had her vast fleet burnt at the coast as a sign to her people that their running was at an end and they'd finally found the home, which is kind of a shades of like Spanish conqueror Cortez. He was more of yeah. like, we're not going home. We have to fight. She was more of like, our fighting is over. We are home. Uh, and this, this cultural cross pollination of the, the, the Andals and the Roinar is one of the big reasons that Dorne is so culturally distinct from the rest of the seven kingdoms of Westeros. Many of their cultural affectations, like the fact that they're, be, they're a principality, they don't have kings or queens, and they have princes and princesses. 
Uh, they're not a kingdom that state stems from ancient Rhoynish customs, uh, obviously having an oppressive woman leader uh, and having a majority of women like infused into the society uh, was also one of the reasons that the Dorn have like very different gender dynamics in right. their politics. You know, they have no problems with women inheriting. Uh, in fact, it, and was, it kind of explains a little bit you know, the old animosity between the Dornish and the, you know, the, the rulers of Westeros. Right? And why they might have trouble bowing to a Valerian to yes. deal to a Valerian. Why? Why it took several, you know, many uh, at least 150 years. They, they withstood the, uh, the Targaryen uh, conquest longer than any other of the kingdoms. Um, but yeah, that's why they're relatively kind of progressive in, time, in terms of gender dynamics. Um, I, I mentioned Nymeria's son, or, uh, daughter, uh, eldest daughter yeah, yeah. is the one who inherited the the princess title of Dorne uh, over their sons. Uh, so you can also see why she is kind of the patron saint of uh, all little girls who want a little bit something more. She was the boss bitch of the time. She had it all. She was able to lead, fight, marry, have children, great wealth and power. Uh, she she had it all. And women like Arya and uh, Rhaenyra clearly see a, a kinship in that yeah and i think that this does bookend you know uh whether you or not you like the end of the series it does bookend Arya's decision to take to the sea right right now it's also interestingly why there is this big region of disputed lands and why these islands are a mess down to this day because the roinar fled not too many hundred years later, you had the Doom of Valeria. You have this giant power vacuum and all the kind of like free states of uh, city states of Essos are kind of surrounding this area and they all kind of mm. want to control it. The access to the yeah. river, all the ports, all the you know the fertile valleys. And that's why it is uh, such a mess down to the day of uh, Viserys. Right, right. Right. And then I, I think that this is interesting to me because um, here we have in this first series at least three women that have aspirations and they and they have they have they have know how they they're dragon riders. Mm -hmm. They could be queen. Sure. Um, and of course, you know, this is sort of a parallel between sort of um, uh, the French and and the British in medieval in the medieval world. I think mm. a, a lot of times what will happen is um, if if you marry a British woman as king, she's never going to have aspirations to be queen. But sometimes these Br these British kings would take for their wives a, a French woman. French nobility. Interesting. And, and the French had a much different view of gender roles. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes what would happen with the French king is he would he would kick off and then his spouse would then become the ruler. So sometimes what would happen is when the British king would marry the French woman, she would have expectations for the, the crown that a British woman might not have. And I think that there there might be some parallel here between the the Targaryens and the and the uh, the Rhoynar. Yeah, sounds like it. Or the Dornish, or something like that. Are are, are we ready to close our dusty tomes, Anthony? Until next week, and then of course, if you if you're curious about any of this, uh, if you're curious to hear any more um, 
uh, from uh, my podcast, Double Dragon. Do a search for Double Dragon. Over at Double Dragon, we uh, this this week I interviewed uh, Nat- Natalie Goodison, who is a, a medievalist PhD, and she tells us about C-section in the medieval world. Lots of people having questions about that this week. A lot of people wondering, yeah. like, well, what is the alternative? What were the medical mm-hmm. outcomes and outlooks? Uh, so that's yeah. uh, that's a hot so topic. She's a- yeah, she's an expert on these ancient texts and she's like got diagrams for like how to turn a baby if it's a breach and what would happen if you tried to, you know, accomplish a C-section and she's got old pictures of of uh, you know, people trying to accomplish this task. I did I did a little bit of research in this and I came across one passage of a Roman wo- noblewoman where the uh-huh. midwives put her in a blanket and tossed her like you would a tr- you know, like 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 yeah, you know, trampoline style, just toss her, toss her, toss her to get the baby to flip around. Wild stuff, wild stuff. Yeah, this is uh, the popcorn method, I guess. Yeah, this is before we had obstetricians or whatever. O B G Y N's. We had blanket parties, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, so it's if you're interested in that double dragon, and then I also interview a medievalist named Ian McGinnis, who's a, who's an expert on warfare. And uh, he answers a listener question about what did these folks do with dead bodies? A lot mm. of dead bodies. What, what would you do with them? And uh, I guess it, it, it uh, he, he talks about the various ways that people would deal with their dead bodies. All right. We'll check follow the maester for more of that and uh, tune in all this this uh, this season for more maester's corner on our house our hot d podcast thanks anthony thanks man all right that'll do it for the maester's corner we've got a couple more emails but they are mostly about the back none of this is spoilers just like the maester's corner but they are like behind background um you know, foundational type information. It doesn't directly deal with like the, 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 the events at hand. Like I said, I, 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 I do not consider them spoilers, but if you're largely concerned with what's on screen and don't care as much about the background, feel free to skip this part. Raise up first. He says, after listening to your first takes of the episode for the first time, I found myself disagreeing with your impression of the bomb that Gurm dropped at the end of the episode. I, for one, never liked the idea that Targaryens conquered for the sake of conquering, and this gives a deeper meaning to their actions. I know this revelation at first glance seems to be at odds with the lore, but let me explain how I made sense of it. You have to disregard Game of Thrones season in seven and eight uh, to make this work. I'm I'm cool with that. I am ready to set aside (laughs) season seven and eight. Never happened. Uh, the prophecy is meaningless if you hold on to the notion that Arya kills the Night King while Lannister sits on the throne. But at some point, this prophecy has to be lost in order for Rhaegar to rediscover it. Yes, that was one of the questions is like, how does Rhaegar stumble out of the, te- you know, the library with new information if this is passed air to air? Says my theory is that prophecy is lost with Aegon the Unworthy. Since and this is going to Aegon the Unworthy's plot line that leads to the Blackfire Rebellion is a good 70 to 80 years in the future at this point. So... We've got this Targaryen's passing secret to secret. We get the egg on the unworthy. He says, since he believed his son was actually his brothers, he wouldn't have shared the secret with him. Instead, he legitimized his bastards and shared it with the two. He wanted to sit on the throne after him, specifically the blood Raven. Now you will better know this guy as the old man that was warged into the tree. The brand okay. goes to learn the arts of the Jedi from. Yeah. 
This leaves the rest of the Targaryen kings without the knowledge until Rhaegar. If blood ra- the Blood Raven was given the prophecy, that would have also given us more reason for the Blackfire Rebellion. Could also explain why he seeks out the Three-Eyed Raven, since in his time the dragons were gone. He would want to seek the knowledge to prevent the Long Night without them. This leading to seeking out Bran. This, like I said, there's a lot going for this and I think it's really interesting to see the community trying to go through and piece this stuff together because I don't think George would just make something new up it's more of like as he's gardening he's noticing that oh there's some interesting tendrils growing in this direction and if you shape them just right they're going to make this interesting new connection that's going Mm -hmm. to you know breathe new life into the thing Um, I want to move on to Dylan says, I think the better question by Aegon the Conqueror's dream is how the fuck that information got to Jaehaerys in the first place. In the first episode, Viserys tells Rhaenyra the prophecy has been passed from king to heir since Aegon, but the succession from Aegon to Jaehaerys was really a, just a giant shit show. This is the, tar- the Targaryen history. Their succession, <laughs> with rare exception, a shit show. Mm. Uh, presumably, Aegon told his eldest son, Anus. That's right. Oh, Not Anus. Not Anus. Anus. Uh, a naked anus in the Targaryen family tree. You knew there had to be one, right? <laughs> who who told his eldest son, Aegon II. Uh, but after Anus died and Aegon II was killed by Megor, the prophecy would have presumably been lost unless it was passed on to Megar by his mother, Visenya, assuming Aegon the Conqueror told his sister wives of the dream. That's the key. There's no fucking way Aegon shared his bed and his throne and everything with his sisters and didn't tell them about this dream he had. I just think that that's, this is, this is the key. So at one point, all three heads of the dragon knew and were working as one uh, about this prophecy. But that still, that still leaves the question of Jaehaerys, since he was pretty much sheltered and hidden on Driftmark during the reign of his uncle, Magor. Driftmark, of course, you'll remember, is the, the seat of power of the Valerians. Mm-hmm. After Magor's death, I think Jaehaerys would have been given the secret by either his mother, Alyssa Valerian, the wife of Anus, or his older sister, Reyna, the sister wife of Aegon II. That may be getting too far into the weeds, but I think this illustrates that the prophecy had to have gotten all the way to Rhaegar, since the line of succession was actually much messier from Aegon the Conqueror to Jaehaerys than it was from Rhaenyra to Rhaegar. There's still some hiccups in the line, including Darren the first getting. Do you want to? Would you like to host a podcast? Because you got this shit down cold, man. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Darian getting ambushed in Dorne, leading to Baylor the Blessed's becoming king, and the fire at Summerhall wiping out a lot of the Targaryen family. Again, some interesting history there. But overall, a much cleaner thread all the way down to Rhaegar. Brody wants to throw in his little pet hitch in the theory, which is given the Mad King's, well, madness and his contempt that he often held for his heir and fear of being usurped. Could it be that he's the one who broke the chain of passing things down? He might have chose to withhold it from his son, and so Rhaegar found his way to it by his own means and thus mistakes it for his own prophecy. Maybe a thin read of the 150 years we have to go and play with, but given how hot D seems to want to tie itself to Game of Thrones rather closer, I don't think it's the craziest possibility. Uh, yeah, I think these are all interesting. I think that's these are all plausible, and it's going to be interesting to see how Martin fills these holes going forward and to what end. You know, why is he doing this? Is it because they have a long term Kit Harrington finance plan to redeem the original Game of Thrones and then do some kind of Jon <laughs> Snow 
sequel series i i don't know because like i or is this is is this hinting of things that are going to happen is this new information we can do some winds of winter dream of spring speculation on um we'll see we'll see i've got a question am am i crazy or at the end of this episode is rhaenyra shown to be reading from a book that contains this information the description of this dream did she i don't remember that i i feel like i remember her reading something at the very end of this episode but i could be wrong because she was like at the end of the episode she just time. stood before a bunch of lords in front of her father and they swore feel swore fealty to her are you thinking okay. about what the 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 scene where her and allison are in the 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 god's woods studying the history book about no, the because that's definitely allison reading from the book okay um, gotcha no, I, th- I thought maybe it was written down, but but I could totally be wrong about that. Um, finally, this is our final email. We have Cyrus who says, you guys talked about why the wall had fallen in disarray or why the wall falls in disarray. If it's known to the Targaryens that this is key to say, you know, Westeros is key to saving the world. Well, the wall had fallen in disarray by the time of A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's pretty well garrisoned in the past. The disarray could be a victim of the lost information that was somehow lost post-Dance of the Dragons. You guys mentioned how the Targaryens, specifically Aegon, never visited the wall, but in the books and even the show, there's an inherent magic to the wall. Magic of the children of the forest, something that seems diametrically opposite to the magic of the dragons. Uh... There is an event where Alison Targaryen, the queen to Jaehaerys I, attempts to travel north beyond the wall on Silverwing, her dragon, and the dragon refuses to proceed. Now, in the Game of Thrones TV show, it seems like Danny does not have an issue with this, but that was also late-stage Game of Thrones where there exists questionable canon according to Gurm. Wondering if the Targaryens did not visit the wall because of the magic of the dragons worked less so. If in the Game of Thrones TV shows events are in line with Gurm, perhaps the Targaryens dare not go past the wall, else risk the others gaining an ice dragon and hence the ability to take the wall down. Uh, although the books have a lot of that. Remember that horn they found? Mm-hmm. Boy, that was that was a big old chest, big yeah. old piece of speculation. That was that that that's a thing that went nowhere. <laughs> uh huh. Um. So I want to talk about this. I the thing is, is like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is all well and good. But like we have a hundred and years of Targaryen history. They conquered this realm to unify it against the White Walkers. And they don't do really anything to rehabilitate the wall. Queen Alicent is or I'm sorry, Alisane, Jaehaerys's wife, is one of the few that do take an active interest takes a shine to the uh, to the to the uh, the Black Brothers. As we mentioned, it was her that motivated uh, Jaehaerys doubling the gift. So they give the brothers even more resources, but they don't actually increase the garrison. They did build a, a new castle at the wall to replace uh, the old night fort that was too old and dilapidated, but it was a smaller fortification to scale down to the present manpower they have to make it easier on the brothers to do the upkeep it wasn't like an expansion or like a bigger more impressive fortification so you have to wonder were the targaryens is thinking that as long as we have dragons we'd be okay and that's the real thing you need you need you need a targaryen on the throne and you need a centralized westeros you need dragons and that's it because as you point out there's a lot of magic and a lot of protection in that wall 
why the fuck are only three castles out of the uh, what is it 13 along that stretch or garrisoned why is it that they're not keeping up with cutting the woods back so that they've got a clear vantage point like why are they so lackadaisical about the actual burr even in times like Jaharis has like one of the longest, most prosperous reigns where he could have definitely made that a priority. There was nothing really distracting from that. Why? I, 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 I don't think there is an answer as of yet. So, uh, finally, and I promise to keep this short, the prince that was promised in the Azora High prophecy are connected to the Long Night. Minor Targaryen thought of themselves as the embodiment of that prophecy. Maybe Aegon thought of himself as Azora High. Maybe... Uh, we will see Egg from the Duncan Egg series feel the same before the tragedy of Summerhall. Uh, he's referring to the tragedy of Summerhall is where the Targaryens were trying to do a last ditch effort to resurrect dragons, hatch dragon eggs. And somehow they burnt down this uh, house where a lot of prominent Targaryens are and they, they burned themselves alive. It's crazy. Right. No, another Targaryen self-inflicted gunshot wound. Rhaegar certainly felt uh, he was it and was also assisted by Maester Aemon until he was convinced that it might be his kin. Both, both John and Danny embody elements of the prince that was promised as well. Perhaps it was not in one individual, but just dragons themselves, or maybe the Targaryen lineage itself was it. Remember, it was always like the dragon has to have three heads. There was mm-hmm. always, it, it, I, I, I never thought of it as a singular figure. Um, is prefixing, you know, Aegon and his sisters. Rhaegar already had two children. He wanted to add a third. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of that to it too. Um, perhaps this is why they're so obsessed in keeping their bloodline concentrated in their offspring. Hence, marrying brother to sister. Maybe what Rhaegar and Aemon found was the information was lost because of Dance of Dragons. So it's how they could connect the Hot D to the GOT, a tragedy due to human ego and desires that could potentially doom the world of men if not for Danny and John. Yeah, yeah. I. Yeah. But those are the questions we have, you know, like, why is all this? Where did the, you know, how many years was this secret not passed? What kings didn't know about it? When was that? You know, when did it resurface? Like there's but because right now it just seems like it adds a lot of monkey wrench and has a lot of early Targaryen behavior kind of inexplicable. But uh, that's just because it hasn't been explained yet. Mm hmm. Hotdee at baldmove.com is how you get feedback to our podcast. You can follow everything that baldmove does at twitter.com slash baldmove. Probably the best way to stay on top of all we're doing. If you want to make sure you get all of our dragon and spaceship and zombie and superhero coverage, I highly recommend you subscribe to Bald Move Pulp. And if you like the other stuff, the Emmy award winning, Oscar winning side of things, we are uh, hosting some quality movie reviews over on Bald Move Prestige. And that's where we also cover more prestige based television. Uh, so check those out. We will be back Sunday night, of course, just after 10 o'clock after the episode drops. We'll be doing our instant take podcast. Uh Of course, our club members are welcome to join us to watch live and stick around to the instant talk portion where we will be taking their questions live. If you want to join the club, it's easy to do so. Support.baldmove.com. You get access to all that great premium content as well as ad-free feeds and a bunch more stuff. Support.baldmove.com. Hot D at baldmove.com is where you send feedback. We'll be back Sunday night and have a full recap of the next episode on Tuesday. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. See ya.